You are now listening to the Here for the Truth podcast, hosted by Joel Rafiti and Eurosimos. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. I'm Joel Rafiti. Got my co-host Eurosimos in the house. We just closed off an incredible 90 minutes with James Corbett. What a man! What a mind! What a conversation! Um, diving deep into you know the truth about false flags and more specifically into 9-11 and the surrounding events, motivations and results of everything that took place in that regard. Just before we get into that, quick announcement. Um, Rise Above the Herd Round 5 is now sold out. Applications are now closed. Thank you to everyone who applied and to the 12 students who'll be going on this journey with us um, in the following eight weeks. We're really looking forward to diving deep and getting started in that process. For anyone that wants to dive a little bit deeper um, with us, we do have our membership community, Friends of the Truth, um, where we do three live calls a month. And we have an awesome Telegram chat um, and community with lots of different subtopics and lots of amazing individuals bouncing back and forth, sharing great ideas, inspiring one another and pushing forward. Um, you can learn more about that at friendsofthetruth.co. Nothing more to say from me. Here's James Corbett. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Here for the Truth podcast. As always, we have an incredible guest here with us today. We have James Corbett. James Corbett is the creator of The Corbett Report. He's an award-winning investigative journalist who's lectured on geopolitics and delivered presentations on open source journalism at multiple universities, institutes, and conferences around the world. He started The Corbett Report website in 2007 as an outlet for independent critical analysis of politics, society, history, and economics. Since then, he has written, recorded, and edited thousands of hours of audio and video media for the website, including a podcast and several regular online video series. He's one of, if not the most informed and published individuals when it comes to the 9-11 Truth Movement. And James, it's a, such a pleasure to have you here. We appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me here. And uh, congratulations on avoiding the uh, the pitfalls of my bio. <laughs> Many people start trying to get into the uh, the pronunciation of Groningen and Ritzemakon and other such universities. So <laughs> good on uh, you. I, I read that and decided to delete those names of those universities <laughs> immediately. <laughs> um, one way we always love to start these episodes, especially with first-time guests, is we'd love just to know a little bit about your origin story. I mean, what led you into investigative journalism and what were the major rites of passage along the way that perhaps primed you for this work? Well, uh, I, I guess in a weird way, my education did kind of prepare me for what I'm doing now. I uh, was an English major back in my oh. university days. And what do you do as an English major? Well, you either become a teacher or a, a journalist. And I swore up and down that I would become neither. And I ended up becoming both, actually. Isn't that weird? <laughs> so uh, after spending some time in uh, Ireland studying Anglo-Irish literature for a year, I decided, what am I going to do with my life for real? Well, I don't know. I'm going to put it off for another year. So I went to Japan to teach English for a year. And one year has turned into 18 years, 19, I don't know, a long time. So I am uh, quite settled down in Japan. But it was while I was in Japan that I started encountering this crazy information on the internet about 9-11 and other such conspiracy theories. And I uh, I had never been particularly adverse to the idea that the, the way power really functions in our society is different than as advertised. 
Um, for example, I had never really bought the Lee Harvey Oswald lone gunman um, narrative or other obvious um, uh, coincidence theories like that. Um, but I'd never deeply explored conspiracy theory per se. Um, but when I had that moment of starting to encounter information uh, like Operation Northwoods and other undeniable pieces of information pointing to the reality of false flag terrorism and pointing out why it would be used as a political useful stratagem, uh, I started to essentially roll the snowball down the hill of researching and finding out more. And it got to the point where I eventually thought, well, I've got to do something with this information. There's really important information here that not a lot of people know about. And well, I don't know. I'll start a web. I'll start a website. I'll start a podcast. This was back in 2007, back before podcasting was cool or even a thing, yeah. really. Yeah. But I decided to get in at that point because it was just the easiest way for me to spread information in English. Being here in Japan, what am I going to do? Start trying to rant at people with my poor broken Japanese? No, no, no. I'll I'll start an English podcast, and so that's what I did, and it quickly ballooned into the Corbett Report, and I've been doing it now for 16 years. Wow, that's incredible! Yeah, yeah. That's, that's what what was the first? Um, I think a lot of people in in this, let's say, truth or conspiracy movement, like nine eleven, was a really um, big opening for them. W would you say that was similar for you, or is there something else that kind of uh, got your attention first? No, I would say so. I would say what really got me into starting the corporate report was nine eleven truth and finding out about that, and that started, as I say, the snowball downhill of all sorts of other issues that become related to that. And I'd say probably the if the first penny to drop was nine eleven, probably the last penny to drop before I started before I decided to start the website was um, the monetary system itself. Well, where what is money? How is it created? And what by what process? And oh, oh, the Federal Reserve. It's neither federal nor reserve. What's going on? So that was a, a big wake up call into because at first, um, I, I guess I was thinking, well, maybe this is just this particular thing that clearly they've lied about. But yeah. it, how does this work and how does this function and how could there be a, a grander conspiracy than this? But once you realize the monetary system itself is uh, an admitted cartel, essentially, um, that's, I think, when the penny really starts to drop. Yeah. I want to start really simplistic, if you don't mind. Can you define what false flag terrorism is? Well, I guess... If we want to start, historically speaking, um, at the actual term itself, it comes obviously from naval warfare, where ships run flags, and they will run flags depending on the situation. Um, it may be battle flags, it may be just the flag representing the nation that they come from, whatever mm -hmm. it may be, but those flags, of course, signal things on the seas, and there are various international laws and rules and standards about what flags you fly, under what conditions, at what times, etc. But... Of course, in warfare, well, all's fair in love and war, as they say. So if you're going to attack an enemy, there are times where it might be a useful stratagem to run up the flag of someone else in order to commit an attack, in order to essentially blame that attack on that other party, the party whose flag you've run up uh, or up your flagpole. And that uh, is a, a, sort of a useful stratagem in a number of contexts. And so it's been applied, uh, at this point, it's more metaphorical than literal, obviously, because we're not talking about naval warfare, but it's been applied many, many times over the years in various military stratagems, going back to the Russo-Swedish War of 18-something or other. I would have to look up the details, but at that 
point on the um, if if I can remember the details correctly, the Swedish king wanted to uh, uh, gin up a war with Russia, realized that he would not have the uh, the uh, the public support to do so unless there was an attack from the Russians, um, literally got the Swedish opera house tailor to tailor Russian military uniforms, um, dressed up some Swedish troops in those uniforms to attack a Swedish outpost in order to blame it on Russia, in order to get the public on board with the war with Russia. That's the type of stratagem that we're talking about here. And there are many, 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 many documented examples throughout history, going back centuries and centuries. Um, it's only in the case of, say, the last the last century or so that people start to go, oh, that's, that's crazy conspiracy yeah. theory. That would never happen. Until it is proven that it did happen, in which case, well, that was a long time ago, and I'm sure it doesn't happen today. Yeah, it just seems like business as usual, and yet people don't want to believe it. That is uh, unfortunately the case, and we find this throughout. It's one of the most interesting psychological aspects of the work that I do, is that you can point to things that are safely enough in the past that I guess it can be compartmentalized in most people's minds. That that Yeah, that might have happened throughout all of human history. But it doesn't happen now. Now we're living in this unique bubble in human history where these types of things don't happen anymore. So, for example, uh, I did a, a documentary a few years ago on World War One, the World War One conspiracy, which is not very controversial at this point. You know, World mm -hmm. War One was not what we were told it was. It wasn't. It was ginned up in various ways, and it wasn't just because the Germans were bloodthirsty people or something. No, there was a big geopolitical. Uh, machination going on here. And you can talk about that fairly safely. Not many people are going to be deeply offended by that. But if you talk about, say, something closer like 9-11, people start to get emotionally involved because they, they feel themselves to be part of that history. And so there is an interesting compartmentalization that people can do just as long as the information is far enough back in the past, it's safe to talk about it. And I'll note that we seem to be crossing that bridge with the JFK assassination, for example, um, and maybe even 9-11, now that mm -hmm. it's 20 plus years in the past, it's becoming safer to talk about and to question and say, you know, Building 7 did, probably didn't just commit suicide. I wonder what happened there. So th there's, there's some sort of magical line that we cross in history where things become far enough in the past that people can talk about them. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's strange to observe that when we get to that point that like the cause for outrage is kind of gone and people just kind of blase about it. Like, yeah, okay, the government did that, but... You know, there's no big emotional reaction. Right. In fact, I think that's probably part of the point of that compartmentalization in most people's yeah. minds. Because if you're in 2002, 3, 4, 5, 6, realizing that 9-11 was clearly some sort of government operation, there was we were being lied to about what happened on that day, that has real political consequences. And if you genuinely know that, then you realize that, oh, well, there are psychopathic murderers uh, at the helm of this country, we better do something about that. There's, there's no, there's no putting your hands up and saying, "Oh, you know, it's just the way the world is." No, this is a pressing political issue that would have monumental um, political consequences if it came out during that time period. But if it comes out decades later, half a century later, well, everyone involved with it is dead. It doesn't really matter politically anymore. That was the past. So I think that's that's kind of why the, the defenses come up so strongly around those types of subjects, because a recognition of the truth of those types of subjects means that people have to do something. They have to act in some way on that information. Yeah. 
I mean, obviously for this episode, we wanted to focus on 9-11. And I know you've done so many documentaries. You've done so much work. There's so much stuff out there. Um, what like, what was the first thing? Like you mentioned, you started getting into conspiracy or questioning. What was the first thing about 9-11 where you went, this is this is ridiculous, what they're telling I wish us. I had a better, a better memory of that particularly uh, it it kind of all hit at once because i uh this specifically was happening around the 5th anniversary and i think i was sort of picking up from the obvious momentum that there was happening in 911 truth at that time there was a big rally in new york and there were things going on that sort of broke through even into the mainstream filter bubble and y- there was some coverage of 911 truth and i i think i was starting to see some of that and i didn't know it at the time what was happening but yeah clearly 9-11 truth was making inroads including online and this was back at the time when youtube really was the wild west of the internet and Mm -hmm. there was shall we say significantly less censorship going on at that time um there were things like google video and websites like that that had a at that time had a top 10 trending not it wasn't even trending videos because that's a weasel word that was invented so that they could then jigger the top 10 list to be whatever they wanted it to be. It was the actual top 10 most viewed videos of the day. And day after day after day at that time, it was, it tended to be populated by 9-11 truth videos and documentaries. So I was definitely seeing a lot of that just being online at the time. And so it was a rush of information as I started delving into it and getting further and further. So I don't remember exactly um, what pieces of information it was, but I do remember, for example, the Operation Northwoods document when I found out, for example, <clears throat> about the existence of Operation Northwoods and then was able to not just hear someone on some YouTube video talk about it. No, I could go to the nsarchive.org website and I could look at the actual document itself, black and white. There's no disputing what that document says or who it was signed by or the context in which it was delivered and what they were proposing. They were proposing to commit terror attacks and to blame them on Cuba in order to gin up a war with Cuba. That's That was it right there. And I remember that being one of the pieces of information, just one, but it was a significant piece of information along the way towards me understanding that this really exists and that there's obviously something to to look at here. Yeah, I remember when um, Loose Change, I think, came out. That was that was my first foray into everything. And it got me really like looking into things and going down, starting to go down these rabbit holes for for a bit. Um, I guess. Because there's so much, you can have a, like a summit of thousands of interviews just to cover every single element of of 9/11. But since we only have, let's say, an hour and 15 minutes, like what's like what are the main things around 9/11 that help kind of dissemble the 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 mainstream narrative that we've been fed for so long? Right. Well, I, I think the one that most people would be familiar with, if you say 9-11 truth, people will automatically assume you were talking about the destruction of the towers and how they came down. And so there is the physical aspect of the evidence in that regard. And there's no shortage of people who have talked about that over the years. Um, for many years, I've made the conscious decision that I am not an engineer. I am not going to bring anything to the table in terms of talking about the destruction of the buildings. Uh, from my own personal opinion, yeah, certainly there, those buildings did not come down just due to the plane strikes. But what about Building 7? Wasn't even hit by a plane. Clearly, there's things going on there that um, are different than what we're told. But I found that actually the, the 
laser-like focus on the buildings and only the buildings, the pyrotechnics of the physical events of that day has served, whether by purpose or not, to A, completely and utterly divide 9-11 truth into you believe this about the way the buildings fell or you believe this about the way the buildings fell. And because you believe this, that's that means you're a shill. Um, which has been a very convenient way of completely and utterly destroying 9-11 truth and making it 100% politically useless. And then secondarily, um, there was a second part to what I was going to say there, but I think I've lost the train of thread, <laughs> but you get the point. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Anyway, at, at some point, I made, I made the decision that I'm not going to concentrate on that in my work. I'm going to talk about all of the other aspects of 9-11 that show that 9-11 wasn't a single thing that took place on a single day involving a few buildings. It was, it's this grand decades long story of a known and admitted cooperation and interlacing of terror groups with intelligence agencies and the use of these terror groups as proxies in various proxy wars. There's an entire story here that gets completely neglected when we only talk about the physical destruction of the buildings. So I've done a number of 9-11 related documentaries over the years. And they have concentrated on such things as, for example, I did the 9-11 Suspects series, mm -hmm. talking about some of the people that any actual investigation, any real grand jury that got opened into 9-11, you would be starting to bring these types of people forward, at, at least at first, as the way into starting to ask the real questions and get people on the stand, and etc. I've, I've done the 9-11 uh, uh, whistleblower series because you'll often hear from the debunkers that, oh, well, if there was some kind of big 9-11 conspiracy, there would be whistleblowers. Well, there have been whistleblowers. It's just that you haven't heard about them because a lot of them have been censored, covered up, marginalized, and ignored. Uh, I've done the 9-11 Trillions documentary talking about the financial aspects surrounding 9-11. Many different very interesting parts of the financial puzzle there. Uh, I've done the 9-11 War Games documentary, talking about the the fact that we cannot look at 9-11 as just sort of an ordinary day of aviation, and, and there was these hijackings and out of the blue. It, it, it was an absolute forest, a sea of various war games, simulations, drills, and exercises that was going on that day or surrounding that, that date. As many as 26, I believe, separate exercises have been identified as converging on 9-11, including, of course, the NRO, the National Reconnaissance Office's drill of running a plane into the CIA building headquarters. They were going to simulate that on the day of 9-11. But no one could have imagined such a thing taking place, right, right, President Bush? Yeah. Um, and then uh, I've done the uh, five-and-a-half-hour documentary on Al-Qaeda uh, called False Flags, The Secret History of Al-Qaeda, looking not specifically at 9-11, obviously 9-11 is talked about in there, but at Al-Qaeda, what this organization is, where it comes from, how it's been used in various ways, its relationship to the intelligence agencies. So those are just some of the aspects of what I cover. So when people ask me, so what's the thing? Like, if you could tell someone one thing about 9-11, my mind just boggles. I, 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 if I could say it in one sentence, I, I suppose I would have and uh, retired a long time ago, but I can't. There are literally, I've done dozens and dozens of hours of documentaries and hundreds of hours of articles and interviews and podcasts uh, on this subject. There's just too many different things to talk about. Yeah. So like in all your research, um, uh, what are the key motives that you've discovered for this false flag event? 
Uh, I, I generally, with events of this political importance, I definitely hesitate to. Well, in fact, I, I genuinely believe that these events do not take place because of a single motive or even just a couple of motives. They generally happen, I believe, because they converge a number of different motivations, um, a, a number of different parties have uh, their own interests in what happens in this particular event. Uh, and that's why the event occurs. So, for example, if we were looking at the JFK assassination, yes, of course, uh, the, it, it is true that JFK was, uh, uh, I, I wouldn't say anti-war, but he was certainly turning in a direction that would not have been favorable to the demonstrable and massive military industrial complex that Eisenhower had just been warning about a few years before that point on his way out the door. Uh, obviously, their interests would be served by a, a vast expansion of the Vietnam War. And lo and behold, JFK gets his head blown off and LBJ it vastly expands the Vietnam War. So that is one aspect of what happened that day, but it's not the only one. Um, there were, as people have pointed out, there were Israeli interests that, uh, that were very, very unhappy about the Kennedy brothers and their involvement in nuclear, in the trying to expose and or stop the Israeli nuclear program, which, of course, doesn't exist or we're not allowed to talk about because it officially doesn't exist. Um, there were problems uh, on that regard. Uh, there were definitely, there were mafia connections to what was going on uh, on that day and the various mafia figures who clearly had big problems with the Kennedys. There were obviously CIA officials like uh, Dulles and others who had been fired by Kennedy, essentially replaced by him anyway, um, because of and had stopped the Bay of Pigs and not backed up that that botched plan, etc. So there were the, the Cuban assassination squads that were conveniently available in Dallas that day. So it's not because there was one particular motive. There were many, many motives. So similarly, on 9-11, I think we can point to many different motives and different opportunities that this provided. Once again, I think the most obvious and the most straightforward is to see what resulted from uh, directly on the back of 9-11, which was the essentially the carte blanche for the launching of the War of Terror, which itself was a just a blank check for absolutely any sort of visionary transformation of the Middle East. And uh, again, there are a number of different interests that had their interest in that outcome. And not only, again, of course, the military industrial complex and Raytheon and all of these other companies that directly benefit from that, um, but also the geopolitical side of that. The neocons having warned from their inception uh, of the project for the new American century back in 1997, I believe they f first formed, and were already lobbying for Clinton at that time to uh, to topple Saddam Hussein. But why? Well, it's because at least a couple of the neocons, um, Fife and uh, Wormser, I believe, had directly worked for Benjamin Netanyahu uh, just a couple of years before writing a paper called uh, Clean, Clean Break, um, a new strategy for protecting the realm, which was all about how, well, Israel's interests would be best served by over overthrowing Saddam Hussein and then going into Syria and getting rid of Assad, et cetera, et cetera, which of course became the, essentially the blueprint for the, the war of terror. So there were, there were clearly Israeli geopolitical interests involved in that. There were economic interests, as I talked about in 9-11 trillions. Um, there are the people that you could point to that definitely benefited monetarily from 9-11, like Larry Silverstein, who just happened to be out of the building that day attending a doctor's appointment um, that his wife had reminded him about. He was going to go in uh, for his regular breakfast meeting at the top of the towers that morning, but his wife reminded him, you've got a doctor's appointment, you've got to see it. 
you've got that skin tag. It could be cancer. So he had to go to his doctors that day and miraculously was out of the building. And as we were, as came out later, he was on the phone later that day, not only within NYFD um, coordinating the bullet, which some people have talked about as some sort of smoking gun. Well, there you go. He said to pull the building. No, he said to pull the firefighters uh, out of the building because it was going to collapse. It's one of those things that uh, I think people make probably too much out of. But he certainly was on the phone that day uh, uh, with his insurers attempting to argue that this was no, this was two separate incidents, two separate terror attacks. So I get double the insurance claim on this. And he did end up walking away with four and a half billion, I believe it was. Uh, when the dust settled on all of the various insurance suits, which is interesting because the New York Port, Port Authority only had the tw- uh, the, tra- the Twin Towers insured for $1 billion. Um, so when Silverstein took it over uh, in earlier in 2001, he was he made sure to insure it for $2 billion, and he ended up getting $4.5 billion, something along those lines. Anyway, the exact numbers are in my 9-11 Trillions documentary. But not just that, um, and not just the insider-informed trading that demonstrably took place that day. There are not one, not two, but three separate peer-reviewed papers that demonstrate, statistically speaking, yes, there was informed trading of these events. You even have uh, ex-CIA, ex-CIA officer Robert Baer on camera talking about, yeah, I knew the guy whose brother worked at the White House, and he said said on 910, you know, get your money out, it's all going down tomorrow. That would that was never oddly that statement was never followed up on by any journalist ever. I wonder why. Um, so there's that aspect of it, but then there is also perhaps infamously on September 10th, 2001, Donald Rumsfeld addressed the elephant in the room, which had been known about. It wasn't announced for the first time ever on September 10th, 2001, but the missing trillions, as in at that point, 2.3 trillion dollars that uh, in the Pentagon's budget that could not be accounted for. So most people don't know that Donald Rumsfeld declared a war on September 10th, 2001 in a press conference, a war on bureaucracy because, man, we just can't find this $2.3 trillion, but we've got our best bookkeepers working on the subject, um, including some members of the, uh, I believe it was the Army uh, accountants who were working in the Pentagon in the exact offices that got struck on 9-11. So Anyway, there's um, that aspect to it, the monetary aspect to it. And then I I guess the other aspect of it, not just the war of terror as the excuse to uh, reorder the Middle East, but the war of terror as an excuse, essentially an emergency that can allow the, the homeland security state, the rise and creation of essentially a dragnet for catching any and all political dissent, which continues obviously to persist to this day. Although people are probably less scared of the scary Muslim boogeyman hiding under every bush or the bush behind every scary Muslim boogeyman. Um, At this point, uh, the apparatus for that still exists. The TSA and all of the other aspects of the homeland security states continue to exist and are now being essentially rolled into the biosecurity state. So there's a lot of different reasons why various players had an interest in what went down on 9-11. So... With so many separate interests and motivations, like how does something like this get organized? Like, what is the mastermind plan that you know converges all these simple, all, all these different motivations into one idea? Like, how does that come about? Where someone like, is there a boardroom where people go, okay, this plan will tick all these boxes for all these interests? 
Well, if I knew the specific operational details of this, then I would probably be involved in the plot. So anyone who tells you that they know about that is either lying or is someone that you should probably have arrested. But um, so I don't I do not know at that level of coordination, but we can look at the way that these types of things have worked in the past. So one source that I would point people to if they want to know about the operations of these types of uh, covert operations and how they work uh, is Fletcher Prouty. Uh, who did work for the Pentagon. He was a Pentagon CIA liaison back in the 1950s, 60s. And he coordinated some of the covert operations that were going on at that time and had a lot of things to say about the JFK assassination and what took place there. Um, but he he talked about the way that these types of uh, operations can be uh, carried out in a number of different fashions. For example, he would talk about the concept of sheep-dipping agents um, as in, you have a an intelligence agent. You uh, it, you might have someone, for example, in the military who uh, it could be use, useful for special forces, special operations, but they need cover um, for some sort of uh, CIA-led operation or something. So they get washed out of the military. Oh, you know, you're discharged. So then they have some sort of civilian cover, but they're actually secretly still working for the Pentagon and or the CIA or both or whatever the case may be. Um, so that's uh, on the operational side of things. Um, I think we we tend to think that people are either they're they're on the payroll, as it were, for the CIA or they're not. Um, whereas in reality, people can be working for intelligence agencies without appearing to work for intelligence agencies, which is probably how the CIA got away with saying uh, at the time that Lee Harvey Oswald, you know, he wasn't on our payroll. He wasn't an employee. Well, yeah, okay, but what kind of relationship did he have with the intelligence agency? What, let's get into the specifics of that. And we now know that there was much more to the Lee Harvey Oswald CIA relationship than had been led on before. We didn't really need documents to expose that, though. Um, but those are those are the types of things that we could think about. And so, uh, in that regard. Um, uh, Kevin Ryan did some great research years ago, and I won't be able to cite the name of the article, but he did a uh, an article. It was a multi-part article on um, access to the World Trade Center, for example. Okay, well, let's say there were explosives or something that were planted in the building. Who could have done that and when and under what guise? And he went through and talked about the various corporations that had uh, contracts for the elevator upgrades that were going on in the years prior to 9-11 and who had access to them and the uh, the types of people who sat on the boards of those companies, et cetera, et cetera. And so I think the important thing to understand about all of these types of operations is that uh, it, intelligence work is based on compartmentalization, that you do not know what the person next to you in the office is doing if you don't have the right classification to understand to know what project they're working on you don't know about it and so intelligence agencies we think oh the cia is this monolithic thing and everyone involved in that organization knows what is happening i don't think well it demonstrably doesn't work like that not everyone knows what everyone is doing and so you get these cliques and intelligence agencies tend to be more about the human relationships of various people rather than whatever organizational structure is going on, which is precisely why an Alan Dulles could continue to wield such incredible um, a power within the agency, even after he got kicked out by Kennedy. He was still very much a presence at the CIA, and certainly all of the teams and uh, people that he had worked with and directed uh, while he was agency director were still loyal to Dulles, more so than 
whoever um, comes in to take his place. And so we see that uh, these types of operations can involve corporate uh, intelligence, military teams, and you do not need every single person who's involved in a plot like this to understand every aspect of the plot. Um, to wrap your mind around how that works or why how that can be the case, I would recommend a great fictional novel, uh, American Tabloid by James Elroy, which is a, uh, a telling of the JFK assassination from the point of view of one of the bagmen um, in the plot, who, as you go through the story, he kind of, he understands the personal relationship between this person and that person, and he knows that this person is angry at that person, and he knows there's various things going around, and he's he knows he has to do this one particular thing, but he doesn't know about any sort of bigger plot. And then the story ends, essentially, on November 22nd, 1963, as he's hearing about the assassination, and at that point, after having seen this story, you know, oh, okay, well... He understands this part of it, and he understands the relationship between this person and that person, but the rest, who knows, right? And I think that's probably the better way of understanding this. I think there's a lot of people who have some small part in this, but very few people who probably see the entire plot and all of the pieces connected together. Yeah, this is why when people question conspiracies, they go, well, how could this happen? How could it happen? And someone has to be speaking about it. Or how do people not know about it? But it is. There's this compartmentalization that occurs where people are are on a need-to-know basis, and then they're just doing their job. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, for example, let's examine that, uh, that uh, Robert Baer statement that I cited earlier. I mean, I don't trust Robert Baer as far as I can throw him, and I think he probably lies and exaggerates and makes things up and whatever else. So it's very possible that he was just straight up lying when he said to in front of the cameras, he said that, yeah, I knew the guy who said his brother worked in the White House who said to uh, get out in on nine ten because it's all going down tomorrow. Yeah, maybe that was completely a lie. But let's just take it at face value. Let's say that th this is absolutely actually what truly happened. And just for some reason, no journalist has ever followed up with Robert Bear about that statement. OK, uh, but does that mean that Robert Baer knew about the plot and knew uh, what was happening and everything? that was, I mean, if that really happened and he had heard that, and so then on September 11th, he sees what's happening. Does that mean that he knows exactly what happened and what plot and who did what and the operational details of it? Well, presumably not, right? He, he would know that something is happening that is not what is being portrayed on TV, but... He might know that for a little bit of a piece of the story from this source or a little bit from that source. And he might know someone who did something years back that relates to something. But to a certain extent, I would imagine that a lot of the people, even people who have been involved with or have some piece of the, the plot themselves are kind of just piecing it together from the outside and from what they understand and the parts of the story that they know that aren't what's being reported. Yeah, yeah. I'm like more so curious, like who's the architect? Who's the person that says, okay, we have all these interests. We need to blow up the towers. This is the thing that solves everyone's interests. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. Well, so am I. And I would say that the obvious suspects that you would start with, um, well, one, one part that would have to be something that you would start by interrogating and getting on the record and under oath and uh, it would be uh, someone like Silverstein. Because clearly the act of taking over the, 99-year lease of the World Trade Center um, from the Port Authority, literally months before the attacks, making sure to doubly insure the buildings and all of that. 
although not all the insurance was in place on the day of 9-11. So that does raise some interesting questions. Well, if you were involved in a plot like this, wouldn't you make sure that all of the insurance was in place and everything was signed and it was all guaranteed? Well, maybe not. Um, but at any rate, you would start with someone like Silverstein because clearly there uh, th- that would be the place that any impartial investigator would start. But there are many, many such threads that one could follow. Um, for example, with that informed trading um, on, that we know absolutely certainly did take place on 9-11, uh, the actual official SEC FBI investigation of that um, uh, of those informed trades ended up uh, ultimately in the 9/11 Commission report. They the in, I believe in a footnote they say well it traced back to a source that couldn't possibly have done any had anything to do with Al Qaeda. Therefore, we stopped the trail. <laughs> okay, and oh by the way, they've actually destroyed all of the uh, records of their investigation as part of routine record keeping. Oh, those are old documents, so they they've all been destroyed, which has been shown by FOIA request. Um, but uh, Kevin Ryan, again, did some research and found out that the, in fact, the person that is mentioned in that footnote of finding these trades that happened before 9-11 that clearly show some sort of informed trading, uh, the investigation led to the doorstep of, it was one of George Bush's cousins, and I don't remember the name, so I won't cite it here. But at any rate, Kevin, I've talked to Kevin Ryan about this. Um, he found this from... Years later, the 9-11 Commission archive records have been released. So there are all sorts of transcripts of all sorts of interviews and things that have been conducted. And he was able to essentially unredact some of the document to understand that it was pointing to George Bush's cousin, who was at that time uh, tied in with Securicom. Again, I don't remember the details because it has been years since I've talked about it. But I have talked about this before if people are interested in those details. So those are the that's the kind of example of, um, you know, people that you would at least start with. And I don't necessarily think that that means that these people are the architects and who who signed on the dotted line. Uh, I know Michael Rupert, for example, um, who did some of the earliest 9-11 truth work, crossing the Rubicon, etc. He pointed definitively to Dick Cheney. He, uh, He had a thesis that essentially Dick Cheney had wrested control of the entire emergency apparatus of 9-11 and the contingency emergency planning and all of that um, specifically for the 9-11 operation. And that ties in with uh, Indira Singh, one of those 9-11 whistleblowers you never hear about, who was working for risk management at J.P. Morgan. And she had been talking to P-Tech, which was this firm that was offering this uh, enterprise infrastructure software, which would essentially be able to predict what was about to happen through examining data mining things that were going on in a large co- corporation or bank. Anyway, PTEC had contracts with uh, all sorts of government agencies, and Indira Singh uh, at least claimed that uh, PTEC had uh, a deal um, working on the interoperability of FAA and, and NORAD systems. And as part of that um, uh, part of what resulted from that was that uh, essentially Cheney was running PTEC in the in the PIOC, the Presidential Emergency Operations Center, on the morning of 9-11, directing the war games, which were simulating and injecting false blips on the radar that further confused the uh, air response that day. Anyway, though, so people have pointed to Cheney as someone who is at, clearly at the top of this hierarchy, but I don't have any you know, definitive proof of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I just want, I want to kind of go back to 
your personal thoughts because within the truth community, there's so many different opinions on what they think happened in terms of even with the buildings. Like there weren't planes, there were drones, it's CGI. Like, like what do you think happened? Like, were they actual planes? Were they who who was controlling them? Again, I'm not saying you have the exact answers, but based on your research, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, including the uh, whole I, Pentagon. The, yeah, the Pentagon. right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, I think that the, the data does line up with the idea that there were real planes. Um, were they passenger jets? Were they the passenger jets that took off from the various airports that day? Did the passenger jets take off from the airport that day? There's data that shows that uh, at least some of the flights, um, the wheels up data doesn't exist for 9-11 as in, were these flights even operating on that day? Um, those are genuine and valid questions. And I, again, do not have definitive answers to them because um, I, I, obviously, the f- I mean, it raises all the questions that we would have. Well, okay, if this was some sort of government plot, would the government release through FOIA information the types of information that would implicate themselves? Well, of course they wouldn't. So we can't trust what they say. But then that leaves up in the big Pandora's box. Well, then anything can be true. And it could be holograms and whatever, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, I, I am convinced enough by the physical evidence that we have and that has existed and that has been documented that there were planes. But I couldn't tell you what planes they were. Um, with any definitive, I believe it could have been those passenger jets exactly as advertised. I don't think that that's necessarily out of the realm of possibility. However, I am certainly sympathetic to the idea of um, some sort of remote control hijacking of the planes, which has been talked about by researchers like Aidan Monahan. I've had on my podcast to talk to him about his research into that concept. Not only the fact that remote control of 767s were per- perfectly possible on the day of 9-11 and there were various technologies that were already developed that um, would have made that possible. It wasn't quite announced to the public yet that they were able to do that, but there were various tests and things that were going on in the public point of view on 9-11 for that. But also some of the movements um, of the planes from, again, from the radar data and uh, other things that we have um, suggest, for example, the when Aiden Monahan describes the bank turn of one of the flights, and I can't remember which one it is that's banking into the uh, World Trade Center. And again, I can't remember what, which tower. Um, but the the bank is an absolutely perfect bank that if he had have straightened out any sooner, or if he had have gone any deeper with the bank, um, if he had have timed that, that curve any other way, he would have missed the building. But he timed it exactly perfectly, which is almost humanly impossible, let alone for someone who's never sat behind the controls of an actual 767 ever before in their life. Um, again, quite amazing. Or the descent of 77, Flight 77, into the Pentagon, uh, the corkscrew turn to come exactly level with the ground in a way that some pilots, at any rate, say is physically impossible. I'm not a pilot. I couldn't uh, adjudicate that. But I do know that pilots have attempted to do that exact maneuver. And even the most experienced combat pilots said that they couldn't do it nine times out of ten. But Hani Hanjur, who uh, was apparently a terrible pilot by all counts, and in fact, someone that on the day they were talking to some of his uh, flight student uh, colleagues who said, oh, I, I can't believe he, he could have even gotten behind the, the controls, let alone done any maneuvering in a, a plane like that, given how terrible he was, somehow managed to pull this off. So, yes, no, I can't, I'm, I can't definitively say on one side or another with regards to this. I have my, my, 
my my opinion on this. But I think that the uh, again the, the people who go around saying if you don't believe what I believe, then you're a shill and blah blah blah, and make it all about the drama. Uh, again, I have no idea whether these people are on a payroll or not. But if they were, I would say that's exactly how they would act, and that's exactly the type of behavior that would be encouraged by people like Cass Sunstein, who, as people out there may or may not know, was uh, Obama's information czar. But shortly before he got put into that position um, in 2008, I want to say, maybe 2007, he wrote a paper, um, co-authored a paper on cognitive infiltration, which was all about how you could disrupt conspiracy theory movements by inserting um, government agents, sometimes declaring themselves to be government agents, but sometimes not declaring themselves to be government agents, inserting them into these conspiracy groups to create cognitive dissonance by pushing back against their claims or inserting other ideas. Now, I've always thought that the most interesting part of that paper is not even the proposal itself by the person who went on to become Obama's information czar of doing this type of activity, but even the paper itself, even suggesting that this is something to do, interestingly, caused a lot of people, even in the conspiracy movement and the alternative media, to start saying, oh, well, you're a cognitive infiltrator. You're a cognitive infiltrator. No, you're a cognitive infiltrator. To the point where, of course, it just becomes people tearing each other apart and the movement divided against itself. People who agree on 99.99% of everything, including the fact that, yes, this is clearly a false flag operation, but you don't believe it was this particular type of fault. Therefore, you're a shill. At any rate, I think Sunstein has clearly won um, simply by just instituting the idea that anyone who doesn't agree with you is a cognitive infiltrator. Is that just another way of people call like the term controlled opposition? Similar, similar word, word that's thrown out there in a lot of these. Yeah, absolutely. Circles. Controlled opposition, limited hangout, because uh, it, then even if someone is demonstrably telling the truth. Yeah, but you're not telling enough of the truth. You're not saying this other thing that I also believe, therefore you're a limited hang. I mean, yes, there's various different rhetorical flourishes that are used to undermine people who are, well, I mean, again, I don't, I don't know anybody's intention. I don't know your intention. You don't know mine. We don't, we're not mind readers. Um, So I've always based it on my entire work and everything that I do on the open source principle of here's my work. Here's all of the sources that I used in creating this work. And you can go directly to the documents and directly to the statements, the videos that I've cited. You can check them for yourself and put them together your own way. Because I guarantee if you just give a list of sources to people and say, okay, now go make a documentary based on this, your documentary won't look exactly like mine. It will be different. Everyone will put the pieces together in a different way, depending on their own experience, their own understanding, their own way of seeing the world. And that's good. Because I think rather than expecting one this one person on this pedestal will deliver the truth from on high. Uh, I, I think that's the wrong false template that we're often given to try to just basically um, give our intellectual sovereignty over to other people and allow them to do the intellectual heavy lifting. And then then I absolve myself of that. My only choice is which person do I slavishly follow? Yeah. And I think once we get into that mindset, we've already lost. It has to be about constructing the the data for yourself. And of course, there are people that you'll listen to that you think are interesting, that bring out interesting facts and put them together in interesting ways. But once we start putting people up on pedestals and making it more about the people than about the information, then I think we lose. Yeah. At the end of the day, I think it's the individual's mind that has to be the final arbiter of truth on any of these matters. 
I'm not sure if this is an area of interest or research of yours at all, but have you um, discovered anything in terms of like the occult significance or symbology or ritualistic aspects of the event? I've certainly, yeah, I've certainly heard about it. I, I haven't done deep research on it, but I know about various things that have been proposed, even 9-11 itself as occultically signifying the skip between the number nine to the number 11, skipping 10, which is the godhood or whatever. And it's okay. like man trying to invoke. I've, I've heard it all. Um, uh, was it SK Baines and the, the 666 ritual satanic sacrifice and, and seeing the faces in the clouds of the smoke coming out of the World Trade Center and all of this kind of stuff. Sure, if that's the way people put the information together, go for it. Um, I don't put a great degree of stock in that myself, and I don't think that that's yeah. fundamentally what 9-11 signifies to me at any rate. But at any rate, I know there are crazy people, I mean, literally crazy people um, who are in positions of power. And I, I say that advisedly. I don't just say crazy as a euphemism. I mean, psychopathically insane. Um, and there's a lot of work on that subject. In fact, I'm doing a report on that right at the moment. I've done reports on that in the past. So, uh, and I think they do believe in crazy things. And there are clearly occultists in various positions of power. So, yeah. personally, I don't necessarily believe that there are magical powers from demonic entities that make these sorts of things happen. But if there are people in positions of power who do believe that sort of thing, then it is, it is at least one avenue of exploration for trying to come to some sort of understanding of these events. Yeah. I remember actually it just came to me as as a young boy. Um, back in the day, there was this thing where if you typed in the plain numbers, I think it was in Windang fonts. Oh, right. Yeah. In uh, in Word, you would get like two planes and two towers, which yeah. freaked me out as a thought. One of them, I, I, yeah, I remember one of them wasn't actually one of the plain numbers like it was it was like a 77 but it was like yeah. al when it should have been ul or something like that anyway yeah there was some there was a bit of <laughs> I, I, I have to bring this up because i've seen and i've shared it with people but that video online that says back to the future predicted 9 11 have you oh, seen yeah. that video i have yeah like what that's, that's just crazy. trippy that's trippy to me man i, I don't know I, again i don't have the answers but i i I don't know if you just think it's ridiculous. I, I thought it was a bit of a stretch. The twin yeah. pine moles and the lone yeah, yeah, yeah. pine mole. Wow. Yeah. Uh, but actually, but, but I mean, the idea of predictive programming, 100%, I've talked about that before. I think it is important. And if I'm going to talk about 9-11 and predictive programming, I'm probably not going to go to Back to the Future. I'm going to go to sure. the Lone Gunman episode that aired several months before 9-11, talking about stealing, hijacking a plane in order to crash it into the World Trade Center? Who? A bunch of terrorists? No. Well, yeah, terrorists, but terrorists in NATO, in NORAD, in the U.S. Yeah. Department of Defense, who are doing this in order to gin up war in the Middle East. And that was literally the plot of the Lone Gunman pilot episode that aired several months before 9-11. So wild. Yeah. Okay, who, who is Osama bin Laden, and how does he come into this picture? Yeah, good question. Um... Well, essentially, I mean, the if you go to Wikipedia and the other sources of bast the bastion of truth, um, you'll find that Osama bin Laden is one of the, I can't remember which one, the 17th son or something like that, of uh, a, a Saudi construction magnate, essentially, although that per perhaps undermines um, bin Laden's father's role. Uh, he, he was connected into the Saudi royal family, had won some lucrative construction contracts and it eventually became essentially the the owner of the bin laden um the bin laden group i can't remember what it was called originally but at any rate uh, um construction 
uh, facility that would that would do important things like uh, uh, construction at Mecca and other such things. So clearly, someone who was very highly um, tied into the Saudi royal family and was a multi 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 millionaire, and as a result, Osama bin Laden was a wealthy scion of this family. Um, but again, according to the official sources and everything, he started to become radicalized, and it was essentially the uh, the Soviets going into Afghanistan and the beginning of that, and the calls for jihad that had been raised in the Islamic world at that time that got that really really radicalized Osama bin Laden. And uh, then again, depending what sources you believe, at some point eighty four question mark whatever. At some point, he does actually himself go to Afghanistan and then he spends a few years there fighting in various battles. And again, even the mainstream sources say he likely vastly exaggerates his actual battle and combat experience and what actually happened to him there. But at any rate, the lore and the myth of Osama bin Laden grows in part because of heavily funded magazines and other such things that the media essentially, um, side of things that he was hoping to fund with his fortune in order to grow the mystique of Osama bin Laden. Anyway, but in the 1980s in Afghanistan, Osama bin Laden had some connection with the CIA, potentially, maybe, what? Well, again, depends on what source you read and in what way you read it, but uh, there are obviously suggestions that the CIA worked together with bin Laden or bin Laden's sort of associates and group in construction of his facility at Coast, but maybe not, and other such things like that. Um, take it for what it's worth, uh, Milt Bearden, who was the CIA state station chief in Afghanistan at some point in the 1980s, um, said that the idea that the CIA had anything to do with Osama bin Laden at that time is just ridiculous. At any rate, um, he gets uh, increasingly radicalized after the Afghanistan, the Soviet Afghan invasion ends and the Soviets are kicked out. There is a question mark over what is going to happen from this point. So, okay, so what's the state of jihad now? And um, conveniently for Osama bin Laden, his main rival for what became the Al-Qaeda organization, which was supposedly founded in 89, essentially, as the troops are leaving, as the Soviet troops are leaving, uh, the main rival for that group um, dies in a car, a car bomb that was never solved. No one knows exactly who did that. But at any rate, the upshot of that is that Osama bin Laden is essentially the unquestioned leader of this vicious uh, terror jihad group that at that time consisted of a couple dozen people in Afghanistan that amounted to absolutely nothing on the international stage and could not conceivably have mounted any sort of attack on anything, let alone the United States. But uh, Osama bin Laden decides to essentially take the jihad uh, against the Saudi royal family and um, uh, is radicalized even further by the Gulf War, the first Gulf War, and the fact that American troops are going to be in the Holy Land, in Saudi Arabia, stationed there. And that radicalizes him against the Saudi royal family. So blah, blah, blah. He gets essentially kicked out of Saudi Arabia, but actually he's seen as part of a diplomatic mission with Saudi diplomats later on, whatever. He's officially kicked out of the, uh, disowned by the bin Laden family, although one of his sister-in-laws says, well, that's not true. We were still in touch with him, et cetera, et cetera. And somehow, bada bing, bada boom, there's some terror events that are going on in New York that Osama bin Laden is not officially involved with, but he, there's 
this weird guy um, called uh, Ali Mohammed, who is officially was working for the CIA or did a did a mission for the CIA, but immediately told the people that he was supposedly spying on this mosque in Berlin. He immediately told them, I'm with the CIA. They sent me here. So the CIA finds out about this and washes their hands of him. They don't want anything to do with this guy ever again. They put him on a watch list. Don't let him into the U.S. But somehow he ends up not only coming to the U.S., but eventually becoming an FBI informant at the same time. Oh, and by the way, he becomes a Green Beret or no, he's training at Fort Bragg. He's a tr- one of the trainers at Fort Bragg. He's not a Green Beret himself, says the fact checkers. Um, and then gets discharged from that at the same time that he's training and helping the people who go on to do the World Trade Center bombing, at the same time that he's traveling to, for example, traveling to Sudan to help uh, uh, Osama bin Laden move from Afghanistan to Sudan and train his bodyguards, at the same time that he's becoming an FBI informant for the FBI in San Francisco. And anyway, this Ali Mohammed guy is an extremely interesting character that 99.9% of the population has never heard of, but apparently is working for all of these organizations simultaneously and seems to be the connecting factor between the World Trade Center bombing and Osama bin Laden and all of this. Anyway, uh, somehow or other, Osama bin Laden continues to get away for year after year after year, even though, of course, we now know absolutely it's not even disputed. The NSA were... uh, officially tracking and targeting his uh, satellite phone from 1994, monitoring all his calls, all his communications. Uh, Of course, they were also monitoring the Al-Qaeda communications hub in Yemen that they had to use to communicate because there were various um, countries from which you could not connect directly with each other. So you couldn't contact someone from Afghanistan and Saudi Arabia. So they were going through a communications hub in Yemen, essentially, to, to convey messages. And it turns out that communications hub was being monitored by the NSA and the CIA, because the NSA wouldn't give the, the the transcripts of those phone calls at that Yemen communications hub to the CIA. So the CIA set up their own surveillance, and they were able to get one side of those conversations anyway. Anyway, so multiple, multiple surveillance going on, um, surveillance that was happening on the uh, the embassy bombers in uh, Nairobi and Kenya in 1998, I want to say. Um uh, they were being surveilled by the same types of uh, surveillance dragnets, but somehow the bombings went ahead. Who knows? And then the Yemen communications hub that was being monitored, that was being called by the 9-11 hijackers, uh, was being monitored. And But somehow 9-11 happened, all of this, and Osama bin Laden continues to get away for year after year after year. And uh, 2001, they have him ca- cornered. Um, they have 4,000 special forces ready to flood the zone, as it were, in the tiny little mountain pass that uh, Osama bin Laden is cornered in. But then they say, no, call it off, and he gets away. And uh, uh, no one knows who, who could possibly say where he is. And then he turns up, apparently, in the heart of the Pakistani military, essentially the, the West Point area of Pakistan, They're in Abbottabad, um, a military academy sort of area. Um, There, I mean, 100%, there's no way that this person was living here without the Pakistani ISI knowing about him. And who was the Pakistani ISI? Oh, it was the CIA adjunct in the region. But anyway, and then they send the special forces in and kill him and dump his body in the ocean before anyone has a chance to take any pictures or see anything about it. And that's the end of Osama bin Laden, right? 
That's just scraping the surface. Anyway, if you want the five and a half hour deep dive, you can go to my False Flags documentary. But I think there's a few things about that story that I have some questions about. Mm. Why, why did they choose to end Osama bin Laden at the time they did? Was that like to increase the resume of Obama or? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, again, I would say probably multiple motivations. One yeah. of them would be um, the obvious benefit of, hey, I'm the guy who got Osama bin Laden, you know. But uh, yes, I, I mean, there's so many different potential motivations. But again, I, it would be yeah. speculation on my part as to why that particular time in that particular way. Um, uh, you could take the, the word of someone like Seymour Hirsch, who did report on the killing of Osama bin Laden. I believe at that point he was reporting for the London Review of Books, but it might have been another outlet that published that particular one. Anyway, um, according to him, yes, it really was this special forces operation and it really did get Osama bin Laden, but they it was part of a, a, a plot that the CIA or the US was essentially embarrassed about that they had... Uh, the, the Pakistanis had known about this and they had found out about it through this other method and they were embarrassed about the way that it happened. So, um, and according to Hirsch's narrative, they were chopping up his body and throwing parts out of the helicopter. So they had nothing left by the time it got back. So they had to make up a story about dumping his body in the ocean. I don't know. I, I don't really trust Hirsch and his single source anonymous stories at this point, but at any rate, there are alternative theories about what happened there. What's the current state of 9-11 truth movement? Like, we're, we're, what, what do you, how do you see it unfolding? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, let me throw that question back at you. I mean, because presumably you guys have talked about this before. You know a thing or two about it. What is your impression? What is the state of 9-11 truth? Yeah, well, I mean, uh, it's, hard to, it's hard to gather whether we're in our own bubble or not, you know, but I guess... In the bubble that we're in, it's something that is, you know, tacitly accepted as as a lie and as a false flag event, and you know, the majority of people agree upon that. I think, I think, I think that's branching into the more mainstream public sphere of things as well. Yeah, you know, in fact, even um, I, I was just going through this again because I, I was writing something recently where I was citing some statistics, and I I've seen them before, but the opinion polls, um are insane. Like even, I think it was 2006 or maybe it was even before 2006. At any rate, there was uh, just a few years after the, the events, um, something like 46% of New Yorkers said they believed the government had lied about nine 11. Wow. I mean, this is not some weird fringe, far out conspiracy, weirdness, crazy sort of thing. Oh, you're a lunatic who believes this. Like half of New Yorkers who even at that time when it was absolutely anathema to even breathe the idea of 9-11 truth were happy to tell pollsters. Yep, yeah, I think we were absolutely lied to. I mean, again, we'll never, ever, ever see this accurately represented in the established media. And I think it is much, much, much more common than we would um, expect if we were just getting our information from CNN or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, having said that, has it had any political force whatsoever? Yeah. Do you think it's gaining political momentum? No. No, the one, this is the one, I guess, silver lining for this event. And even the fact that you said, you know, 46% of people of New Yorkers at that time didn't, you know, didn't believe the official story is that that event opened up so many people's eyes in terms of distrusting 
the mainstream in terms of distrusting government and allow them to be more open to other things being falsified. You know, even the fact that like this whole the last three years, the whole COVID, you know, narrative and shenanigans, there's a lot of people that just are like not not about it, not believing it. And yeah. I think just think yeah. more and more people are questioning these these narratives that are yeah. coming out now, whether or not anything happens from it. Anyone goes to jail. That's a whole other story. Yeah. Well, that is essentially my my analysis of this is that I think the time for juries and, you know, actual court justice and political ramifications for this has probably come and gone. I don't think we should ever give up hope on that. And I think we should continue to, to work towards that. But I wouldn't exactly uh, hold my breath waiting for that. But the absolute sea change in public opinion and and public perception um, that has taken place as a result of this is enormous and, and incalculable. And there's a real question. I've, I mean, I've thought about this uh, at various times over the years. If, if there was no 9-11 or if, or if there was not, nothing to 9-11 truth, would I even be here doing this today? And I, I think probably the events of the last few years, I cannot mm. imagine any any possible universe in which I would have just said, oh, okay, this is all good. But um, <laughs> up, up until that point, I'm not sure. I mean, I don't know. I'm sure I would have been distrustful of various narratives, but would I have been devoting my life to talking about and examining these types of things? Probably not. So yes, there has been a, a real consciousness change that has happened in a lot of people as a result of this. And that is, well, I mean, it's positive, at least in the sense that people are more aware of the existence of the concept of false flag terrorism. I've always cited that as one of the big wins of 9-11 truth is that I, I vividly remember when I first started talking about this, just the idea of just positing 9-11 was an inside job. The immediate conditioned response of most people would be, why would the government attack itself? Well, that isn't such a mind boggling concept to people anymore. Most people at least understand the idea of the false flag stratagem and why, uh, 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 how it can benefit the people who are employing it. So at the very least, I think we've broken through some of the conditioning that the public has been under. Is it enough to really change things going forward? Well, if the last few years are anything to speak of, maybe not, but maybe so. Again, the last few years, I'm sure, have woken up many, many, many more people to this and to what's going on. Is it enough? That's always the question. Yeah. Like... You, you talk about this whole concept of disclosure, like disclosures here based on this summary, like the, we're saying the majority of people, you know, passively accept this information, yeah. but it, like, it's like, are, are, are people um, wrong for anticipating some huge peak moment of descent where things just turn around? Or is it more so just a slow degradation of trust and credibility in these systems, which we're just, you know, moving through in this reality? Like, yeah. Well, uh, unfortunately, either of those alternatives can be weaponized, uh, essentially, by the very powers that shouldn't be that we are theoretically waged against uh, in yeah. this information war, which is fundamentally what we're engaged in right now. Um, for example, if it if it is simply a long, slow waning of trust in government authority, then that places people in the position where they are more and more primed essentially for some sort of galvanizing totalitarian figure to step in and promise the order that people are so desperate for. And I, I think we saw, I mean, as 
as ridiculous as all of the events, especially in American politics, have been for the last several years. In a sense, I think what we saw with a figure like Trump, um, I, I don't think Trump was the dictator of the, you know, the, oh my God, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity. But I think that that is the kind of reaction we see to the waning of trust in government. At the very least, people get pissed off and say, all right, let's just throw a, a bomb thrower in the middle of this political mess. Ha ha ha. At the very least, just for the lulls, just to see what will happen. And that's the kind of mindset that people start to adopt after long enough of the low trust in government that isn't that isn't coming from a place of conscious direction of those energies. Again, people are are as long as they're still trapped in the mindset of, well, what we need is a strong leader. Well, don't worry, there will be a strong leader to come along to take those powers. Um, so th- I think that's one of the the potential downfalls of this. The other is that the uh, if w- what we're expecting is some sort of mass riot, protest, dissent movement or something to come along to upset everything, uh, I, I, again, think that can be easily weaponized by essentially creating the circumstances for the very justification for the institution of that homeland security state that people have been talking about. So we see the weaponization of the domestic domestic extremist, domestic terrorist idea that has definitely been heavily promoted in the past few years. And oh my God, January 6th was worse than 9-11, I tell you. And so anyone who dissents is going to feel the full brunt of the entire homeland security apparatus that was set up specifically and, and foremost for the American people, as 9-11 truthers have been warning about since since the events themselves. So I think the real point of this has to be a conscious and directed understanding of the political reality that we're living in and a recognition that the 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 the, the savior that we're looking for is not a, some sort of political savior. It's not a political movement that is going to save us from this this vast conspiracy, as it were. I mean, who articulated this conspiracy um, more clearly than someone like Eisenhower? Yes, President Eisenhower, decorated general, war hero Eisenhower. It's the military-industrial complex. Their their influence, whether sought or unsought, could become essentially a a takeover of the government. And warning about the uh, the institutionalization of um, the scientific elite, which he was also a scientific and technological elite, is what he said in that speech. Well, hey, that looks like the last few years as well. So there is a vast conspiracy. And the idea that the levers of power of this incredible apparatus of control that has been set up um, in the U.S. and basically every other country around the earth um, is at the whims of voters. And don't worry, guys, you get to write your suggestion on some ballot and cast it every four years, and you can totally take back your government, um, is the type of pipe dream that they sell to the public in order to keep them engaged as hamsters in that wheel, spinning it around until essentially the wheel, hey, wait, this is a prison. Oh, I get it. Um, So again, I think we have to understand the nature of the system that's been constructed around us before we have any hope of really doing something productive with this information. And it's always been my intention not just to talk about, oh my God, this horrible conspiracy, oh, poor us. My point has always been to try to direct people to the understanding that the power of the system has always been derived from us, from the people. Um, And that's perhaps no, there's no better way to understand that than through that monetary system that I was talking about earlier, the creation of money itself, which 
most of the money that is created in the economy today in most countries um, is not money that's being printed up out of by a, a treasury or some bank or something. No, it is money that is being literally created into existence by commercial banks as loans, mortgages and car loans and whatever else. Most of it is money that is created by the banks themselves as in debt that is then owed back to the banks with interest, which is yeah. a very nice system if you can get that bank charter. But what does that really mean? Sometimes people will frame it as saying that money is created out of thin air. No, it's created out of a promise. It is created out of our promise to devote our labor to the banksters. And don't worry, I will work for another 30 years to pay off this mortgage. So you have me in this debt servitude for 30 years. And they take that and they uh, financialize that instrument. Hey, and then they turn it into collateralized debt obligations and whatever other wizardry they do behind the scenes on Wall Street. So I think we have to understand, again, even the base of the monetary system itself is based on us and our our productive labor. We are the linchpins of the system. And so when we start to realize, oh, it's not about some uh, electing some political savior to come and save us. It is about what we can do if we take that energy away from the system and start putting it to our own productive uses. So I've tried to really not only stress that in throughout the years of the work that I've been doing, I did a series on lessons and resistance. I did... Uh, a number of solutions-based episodes. But now I've started a weekly Solutions Watch um, series where I just look at things that people can do with this information and what they should be starting to think about, at least in regards to their own lives, how to come together to build intentional communities, to start alternative monetary infrastructures, trading infrastructures, the sorts of things that really we should have been doing centuries ago. But hey, I guess the second best time to start is today. And I... That's that's really that uh, for me, that is what this is about, because we are about to start heading into the real nightmare craziness of the transhuman fourth industrial revolution, truly wacko stuff that is coming down the line. Neuralinks and brain chips and AI chatbots and whatever else are is coming is almost already here. And I think uh, we don't have uh, unfortunately, we don't have decades of. Leisure time to devote to simply studying conspiracies. I think we have to really start thinking about what we're going to do with this information. Yeah, I think that's been like part of our mission and what we're doing is it's one thing to go out there and point the fingers at everyone and to say all these evil bad things are happening. But what are you doing as an individual? Like, how are you taking care of yourself? How are you knowing yourself on a deeper level? How are you setting yourself up to be creative, to be productive, to build communities? You know, and I th I find that there's some people in, in I say, the truth conspiracy movement, the alternative commun communities that I just think they're realizing this even more. And they're just like, great, there's all this crazy shit happening. But like, I need to take care of myself. I need to take care of my loved ones. I need to learn some skills. I need to build relationships with with like minded people. And and I know that's that's kind of where I've been at more so now. I mean, I love going down rabbit holes, and I will continue to. But you know, I, I want to continue to evolve and grow as a man and see how I can move forward in the world in that way and 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 live my life and stay as pure and as natural as I can be. As this this whole fourth industrial revolution with AI, it's pretty fucking crazy, man. Like this AI stuff and Chat GPT and I don't know, man. It's 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 beyond. Going to get crazier by the day from here. But yeah, I, I hear you. I agree with what you're saying there. Um, and that's not, again, that you're right. That isn't to denigrate the process of understanding more about the conspiracy and how it functions. Because yeah. the better we understand the problem, the more 
accurately and and uh, uh, more t- targeted fashion, we can craft our own solutions yeah. to those problems. Yeah, because it's not about you don't want to stick your, but yeah, oh yeah, you don't want to stick your head in the sand. You know, it's like know yeah. know thine enemy, and then you're able to yeah. um, plan accordingly based on that. Exactly. Um, yeah. Uh, in fact, yes. If we look at this as an information war, which I think it is, then the the art of war and those principles that have stood the test of literally millennia still apply. And know your enemy, know yourself. Um, and the better that you know your enemy and what it is capable of and what it is doing and how it is attacking you, the better you can respond to that. And not just respond, but determine what you want to do proactively. Because I, I, again, I think it turns into a, a thing where if you're simply responding to what is happening, then in a sense, whether or not you believe the propaganda they're trying to sell you, at any rate, you're still being led by it because all you're doing is responding. We have to take ourselves out of that mindset and into the mindset of, no, we are creating a different system. And we have to think about the way that we want to set up that system that will hopefully um, preclude, forestall, or derail the plans of would-be conspirators and schemers. Are you hopeful for the future? If I wasn't, I wouldn't be here. Um, if I truly thought there was no hope, why would I even be talking to you right now? No, I, I think there is. Um, but it's, it's a, <laughs> I mean, it, it, I, I don't know if it's a coin flip, but it certainly is not a 100% certainty that we're going to win this thing. Uh, it could definitely go either way. And, um, and, and the worst part is, I, I keep it in the historical perspective. Absolutely, there have been times of incredible tyranny in various places throughout world history. In fact, that's probably been the the, the default for most of human history in most places for most people. So, um, I'm not. I, I know that that can happen. But the problem is that as we plunge further and further into the technological side of this, we come closer and closer to what uh, Aldous Huxley called the uh, the ultimate revolution or the final revolution. I forget what term he used, which is essentially a type of technological servitude where people are medically, biomedically induced to love their servitude. So they don't even recognize it as servitude. And there are various neurochemical, pharmacologic, pharmacological um, devices for instituting this. And he was talking in the early 1960s about this. How much further along has that uh, research gone in the past half century? Quite a bit further. And so that's what I'm really afraid of. As long as the human spirit exists, as long as humans continue to exist and the human spirit exists, tyranny can and will come, but it will be thrown off. But once they get into the genome and start bioengineering us and putting the brain chips in and whatever else, that's a very different game. That's the end of human history. And that's into transhuman or posthuman history or whatever it will be. And that, I think, is the real danger here. Yeah. What's your role? I mean, what's your view of Elon Musk? Oh, <laughs> well, if people want the uh, the longer answer to this, I did a podcast last year called uh, Meet Elon Musk Technocratic Huckster, where <laughs> I just think it's an interesting phenomenon that all of the the World Economic Forum goals and ideals and carbon taxes and brain chips and all of this are being pushed by Elon Musk as well. But when Elon Musk does it, it's cool and funny and he's he's a good memer so i guess it's all good or something like that no i'm a person of principle and i find the principles that elon musk stands for to be abhorrent um so do you think trump was legitimately elected or was he was he part of the plan and placed in there and was the whole 
you know, big shock horror that, oh, Trump's now in in 2016 in the whole war with Hillary drama? Or do you think that was real? Because I try to contrast that against what I would call the obvious voter fraud, which took part in 2020. And how does that story make sense? Right. Uh, You know, okay. So I guess what level of engineering of elections are we talking about here? Because I I don't tend to call them elections, especially not in the U.S. presidential race. Uh, They are selections. Um, At the very least, because there are only ever two possible candidates, no matter who is running for third party. That's not even that's not even a spoiler at this point. It doesn't even matter. It's completely irrelevant. There are two people who ultimately get um, winnowed down to this. And the idea that, again, this multi-trillion dollar infrastructure of complete global domination in the age of the military unipower, that is the U.S. empire, is going to be at the whim of some voters. And oops, they voted the wrong person. Oh, I guess, you know, this entire apparatus of all this control is going to have to go to them. I remain somewhat skeptical of that uh, position. I think you don't get into uh, the presidential race unless you are a a team player, shall we say. So, no, I don't think Trump was some sort of spontaneous people's choice that just came out of nowhere and, oh, my God. Uh, Having said that, um, I'm also not the the believer in the single uh, monolithic conspiracy that there's a script that's been written out and all of the people are all at the same table and they all get the script and go, okay, well, this is what I will do now. Uh, I think there are competing factions within the power structure that are competing for control over the global corporation that is seeking to rule over us. And they have their own interests and their own perspectives and their own preferred ways of doing it. And there are genuine, if not left, right in the terms that we tend to think of that, at any rate, there are competing power factions that do war with each other. And I'm sure they play dirty tricks on each other all the time in the same way that the mafia. Uh, again, there's, mm. there's not one mafia don that tells every single person. No, there is competing mafia dons and sometimes they will have wars and they will have fights. And those are real fights where people really get killed. Um, but uh, the, 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 the analogy applies because if anyone is actually a fre- threatened, threatened to the, uh, a threat to the mob in general, they will get killed like, say, an RFK, right? Um, but they might have their own internal squabbles. So I, I, that's the way I tend to see all of these sort of political factions that arise. Um, and the fact that someone like Trump gets into power, but even if he was this populist savior that people thought that they were electing, what did he accomplish? In fact, things are actually probably further down the field for people who are seeking to implement the globalist control grid than they would have been without Trump in the first place, because then he became the easy foil to essentially implement everything but in the opposite direction. If people want the sort of thoroughgoing treatment of this, I did a podcast called Precedent Trump um, shortly after the 2020 selection, in which we got Biden selected into the office. And I don't trust that election selection any more than I trusted the 2016 one. I think it's, uh, these are the shadows on the cave wall that people yep. love to argue about that really and truly do not influence the American empire or its direction in any way whatsoever. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in alignment with you there, James. I mean, I, I think the, the mafia analogy is something I've given often is that, um, you know, and, and applying that on a global level uh, makes the most sense. Um, so, you know, I mean, I'm curious to see how things are going to play out. Um, but again, we don't know. 
That's for sure. I don't. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who? Yeah. Who? Who killed Tupac Shakur? <laughs> <laughs> now that is the real question. I don't know. I really don't know. I haven't looked into that. But here's another question: Who killed Kurt Cobain? Uh, oh shit! Interesting. I don't know. I haven't. I like how you you probably said that you Kurt brought up Cobain. I tend to think probably not, but yeah, yeah, I love that you brought up who killed Tupac because the words that were going to come in my mouth, I wanted to go back to something because we talked about it briefly. It was JFK? Like, who do you? What do you think ultimately happened to him? <laughs> yeah, good question. He got his head blown off. I know that. Yeah, um, yeah. and okay. I would, I would tend to think it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't one shooter. Yeah, I, I tend to think there were multiple shooters. And I, again, depending how a situation like this plays out, the shooters may not even know the other shooters. They may not even know there were other shooters. Um, again, depending on how the plot plays out. Um, so, uh, again, going back to that American tabloid book, mm. um, the, the, it was such an experience reading that and sort of seeing, seeing a plot like that from the perspective of just sort of one of the low-level bagmen that don't, don't, they're not plotting the whole thing. They don't know it. And one of the things that really struck, strikes you at the end of that book is that even if you knew the name of the, the shooter who did the headshot, it wouldn't tell you about the plot. It wouldn't, th- that piece of information may be utterly meaningless. In the same way, I, uh, in fact, I interviewed um, uh, William Pepper about mm-hmm. his uh, Plot to Kill King book, in which he names the person that he... Uh, after his research, he believes was the the shooter of MLK, um, not James Earl Ray, but uh, the man that he names. And that name is so meaningless in terms of the overall plot that at this moment, I cannot remember the name of the person yeah. that he said. It's true. That's uh, a pretty important piece of information, don't you think? Well, actually, in terms of the plot, I mean, yeah. the overall be, plot, maybe we, not. We seem to be I mean, so magnetized. Yeah, we seem to be so magnetized, like who did it, who did the final thing. Yeah, ultimately, it doesn't matter. There are so many things like that that I think come from various sort of Hollywood conceptions of the world that we've internalized. Um, Who who is the Rambo who does the thing that is either the heroic thing or who is the evil villain who does the thing? And this is the thing that happened. And there's no complication about stories and who's working for who and what happened behind that. I mean, if you want to see that represented in a Hollywood movie, watch Syriana. And 99.9% uh-huh. of people will watch a movie like Syriana and go like, what? what? I don't understand. There's so much happening. And what was that about? And what, what happened? Yeah. And That's too complicated. Just give me the hero and the villain. Yeah. And we, so we, we are conditioned to expect the, the Tron ending, as I've pointed out many times. That you know, you you go up in the big battle against the master control program, and it's the evil red guy and the heroic blue guy. You know, destroys him, and all of the the Tron world goes from red to blue, and everything's happy again. And that's the template that we are given, knowingly or not, over and over and over and over again in our cultural conditioning to expect that that is reality, and that's why people will vote for their warrior. Yeah. Or Trump or whoever, who will be the savior, who will go in and defeat the master control program and everything will turn blue again and we can all be happy. We're free. I don't think it works like that. Yeah. Um, I am constantly, I constantly think back to the, the ending of uh, the, the, uh, the Empire, not the Empire Strikes Back, um, Return of the Jedi, where, um, of course, okay, so Darth Vader's dead and the Ewoks are burning his body and they're all partying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, of course, Luke's having the moment of knowing, A, that, well, 
Darth Vader actually, in a weird way, turns out to be kind of a hero or kind of a, not yeah. a hero, but he does the good heroic thing at the end. So what was he ultimately and what? how do we deal with that? And also knowing that this isn't the end of all all evil in the universe for all time. This is just a sort of waypoint. I mean, that's, that's I think, at least somewhat more of a realistic thing to look at is I, I try to think, I try to imagine the the end point when Darth Vader is dead and the, you know, we're dancing around his funeral pyre. What would that look like? What would be the win here? How do, you know, oh, human oppression and conspiracy and everything has ended for all time. Yeah, it wouldn't I, I because people because people still are dealing with their own psychology and the exactly evil right. within. This is and the they- point. Because you're exactly right. This is the point. That why people get so magnetized and hung up on this individual and this name. And if we know this person or this group or it's this thing, then all we have to do is get rid of that thing and everything's better. But that isn't the case. It, a power structure has been set up because there are always people who are magnetized and drawn to power. And you get rid of whoever's at the top of this power structure today, there will be a million people vying to get into that spot tomorrow. It's about fundamentally people's human psychology. And that's why I think so the study of psychopathy and yeah. the way psychopathy can completely warp society in its own image is yep. such an incredibly important and understood, underappreciated point that our society and the way it exists is being really shaped into a sort of psychopathic machine um, by people who in a real sense aren't human in the way that we are and do not experience emotion and uh, experience the uh, um, the understanding of other people in the way that normal functioning human beings do and that's such a wild concept for most people that they they won't even be able to wrap their head around yeah but there's anyway i'm working on that right now there will be a lot more to say about that we we essentially live within the macrosm of a psychopath's psyche. Yeah. It's been pointed out many times. It's been documented by researchers like Andrew Lobachevsky, yeah. um, uh, Ponerology, the study of evil, um, mm-hmm. Ponerogenesis, and how psychopaths literally shape and mold society. And then the worst part is that it isn't just psychopaths, it's also sociopaths who are not in the structured biochemically in the same way that psychopaths are, but can uh, essentially adopt the psychopathic mindset in order to get ahead or or simply because of situational ethics. And that's sort of what the Stanford prison experiment and other things have shown over the past is that to a certain extent, even your average, you know, your average Joe who probably wouldn't be some sort of psychopathic, sadistic torturer or whatever placed in the right circumstances in the right a mindset with the right guidelines, wearing the right uniform, can become and adopt that mindset. And yeah. even how people can be like when you look at the Milgram experiment, people can be convinced to do things that would be seem psychopathic just because they're under the um, the fist of authority, like they're told to do something. I mean, it's pretty it's it's pretty wild. This is why, again, I think like I love what you said earlier about like there's not going to be any political shifts. And I think the change has to happen on an individual, on an individual psychological level. A person has to do whatever work they need to do, integrate their shadows so then they can see things into the world, in the world, instead of projecting it out like, oh, everyone else is evil. You know, I don't know. It's sometimes I I, have I think if there it, is like a real baseline, actual sort of solution to this, it would be to fundamentally transform our understanding of parenting 
and uh, mm-hmm. how we raise children. I think so much of the trauma that exists in the world is trauma that's inv- inflicted in childhood. And, uh, you know, yeah. that's a generational process, which no one wants to hear. No, I want to be able to cast my vote for some political savior once every four years. That's what I want to do. Raising children? Oh, my God. That, that'll that take generations, and who knows how it'll turn out. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there. Seems there's so many threads that we could pull. This discussion could go on for a long time if we really wanted it to. We'd love to have you back sometime down the road if you're keen to to go further into other subjects. But what can I say, man? What an what an honor. Just thank you so much for the years of effort and tireless research that you've put into this. Um, it's absolutely incredible what you've compiled and what you do day in, day out makes a huge difference, man. So thanks for being here and thank you for having this conversation with us. I appreciate you having me on. Thanks for talking to me. Yeah, real quick, anything you want to share with our audience, like things you're working on, how they can support you? I mean, we'll have your your website down below, but anything else you want to kind of just leave before we wrap up? Well, I guess just on that last note, I am uh, writing an editorial series at the moment called Descent into Madness, not Descent into Madness, Uh Descent into Madness, about how psychology has been weaponized to turn political descent into a pathology. You're crazy if you resist or if you're not happy with the way things are in this system, where the reality is the exact opposite. You're crazy if you think everything's normal, essentially. So um, that's an editorial series that I'm writing right now. I've written the first two parts. I think there are another two coming. Um, and they come out as part of my subscriber newsletter every weekend. But that editorial is completely 100% freely available from my Substack. Anyway, all of the links to all of my work is at corporatereport.com. Awesome. Guys, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Take care. Smoke and mirrors, I'm seeing through the illusion. Waking up in a the time, they think you're in a delusion. Somebody set the alarms, because they be too busy snoozing. I'm in a DeLorean. Fast forward an evolution to a place where we can share that confusion. 450 BC, I'm sharing tea with confusion.